The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 35 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is my good friend, Brendan Buckley. Brendan is a first call drummer for many top artists, most notably with Shakira, and more recently with Perry Farrell and Morrissey. So in this episode, I want to focus primarily on building the rigs for those different artists and then what the expectations are. And then we go into our usual tangential conversation. So let's get to it. Brendan Buckley. All right, I'm gonna fire away. So first question, most importantly, who would win in a street fight? A semi-pro boxer or a semi-pro jujitsu martial artist? Uh, that's a serious question. That's a serious question. All right, semi-pro <laughs> boxer, semi-pro, semi, semi-pro what? Jujitsu? Yeah. So not world class uh, where they're doing you know elite level. Just a trained fighter, boxer or a jujitsu. All right. This uh, this might. Uh, offend some people, but I would say I put my money on the jujitsu guy. Yeah. I would say uh, the boxer has a good chance in the first fifteen seconds to to get a couple really good shots and knock out the guy if he gets him on the jaw. But if it goes any longer than that, the uh, the jujitsu guy would definitely close the distance and wear the guy down. Mm. Um, I think uh, it's two different styles, so it's a it's a matchup issue, but. I think there are more weapons that a semi-pro jujitsu guy can uh, deploy as opposed to a semi-pro boxer. Have you been in a street fight? I have. Did you win? <laughs> uh, I was in a street fight once where I was, I was mugged by a gang of people. And, I, and, I, and we stalemated, so I think I won. Okay. Okay. It was it was like me versus seven, and the fact that nothing <laughs> happened and that we we broke even. I'm like, I'll take that as a win. What was your move? How did you posture up on him? Oh no! It was I was so shocked. Actually, I didn't even know what was going on. I'm like, what? Are these guys messing with me? Or are they they trying to rob me? I mean, I I was like, I live in this cloud where this stuff doesn't happen ever. I'm like, oh, yeah. and so I I was I got jumped in New York City, and mm. I was like. I was like, what's going on? What are these guys? Why are they trying to grab my phone out of my hand? What's is, is this a prank? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, no, this is for real. They're <laughs> swinging at my face. So uh, so I just I actually just dragged a couple of the dudes into 8th Avenue and we started fighting in the middle of the, of the street. And Holy then cow. and then they uh, and then they all just ran into a subway station. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't sound real, but I guess anything's possible does, in New York. It didn't feel real. It wasn't until like uh, like a minute later where, uh, honestly, like where, I don't know, the adrenaline like wore off. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> That's not at all like an Avengers movie. <laughs> Did you keep your phone, though, is the most important. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, my, and my friend was on the phone the whole time. He was like, oh, my God. Yeah. All right. So are you still training? Yeah, I am. I am. What is yes. your training regimen these days? Um, well, I go to this uh, martial arts academy that has classes all day long, every mm. day. And you can do kickboxing, jujitsu, you can do yoga, you can do CrossFit if you want there. So I normally go about four days a week and I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu there. And I'll do maybe one day of kickboxing. Mm. Um, and, uh, and any day that I'm not going there, I usually go to gold's gym and uh, you can tell by these pythons that I'm <laughs> holding here that, that I'm just such a fitness, uh, geek. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where all that exercise goes, but <laughs> I don't look like an Adonis here, but, uh, but I do like to, I mean, I think I like to use my body. So it's like use it or lose it. You know, I, uh, drums are very physical. Um, we all know that it, it, you know, as you go from 16 to 26 to 36, you just start to feel weird aches and pains when you mm -hmm. sit behind the drums. So I'm trying to, you know, reverse the aging process by staying as flexible and fit as I can. And I think, um, I try to exercise every day. I either go to either go to the martial arts academy or I go to the gym. And, um, 
probably a nice mixture of both keeps me from breaking down. I think mm-hmm. if I went seven days a week going full on combat, I'd also probably be in the hospital. Why did you pick jujitsu? What, what was that appeal? Hmm. Um, the appeal was originally I was so hmm, good question. I would tour and on bigger pop tours, you have security guards with you traveling with you. And I thought it was just so funny that they were the exact opposite of me, mm. like just personality wise, body type wise. I'm like a goofy string bean. And these guys were really big, um, serious dudes. So I would mess with them on tour. I'd like, you know, <laughs> like I would just I would just jump them <laughs> just for fun and see what they did. And, and I was always amazed by like the actual technique behind self-defense not just a bunch of bouncers like you know punching guy in the face but the actual technique that exists with physics and leverage Mm -hmm. uh to to self-defense and i was like show me that show me that the same way if someone did a really cool lick on the drums i'd be like what what sticking is that i would do the same thing if someone had my wrist in a weird position i'm like man that's crazy what is that Mm -hmm. and so i remember getting off of a tour and going and taking some self-defense classes because I said, I don't know any of this stuff. Um, and I, I went, I took some self-defense classes. It was mind-blowing, like, opened my eyes to all this stuff that I didn't know. I find it, I found it fascinating. So I just kept on going uh, and taking different martial arts. I, I studied Kempo Karate for a while, kickboxing, um, like Muay Thai kickboxing, and then... I started studying jujitsu also. And that's really fun because if people who don't know the difference is jujitsu is um, a grappling martial art, which is more like wrestling with submission holds. Mm. So you wrestle until you get a dominant position and you can make the other guy say uncle. So that's how it works. And what's interesting about that martial art is that, well, maybe two or three things. One the permutations are endless. There are so many combinations of moves depending on the scenario. So really get your brain buzzing, like in a chess way, they call it physical chess, because depending on what the guy does, there are eight variables and it just keeps on building like that exponentially. So by the end of a class, your mind is like uh, buzzing uh, in a strange way that uh, it's hard to sleep at night because you're thinking about all these options. Mm-hmm. And two is it's one of the, it doesn't look like it, but it's one of the safer ways to spar and to train because they take out a, a lot of the, you're, you're not supposed to punch or kick your partner in the face in mm-hmm. jujitsu. You can in a street fight, but in, in the class, you're not allowed to do that. It's all just wrestling and grappling and getting the guy to say, tap, I quit. And then you restart. So that way you can kind of simulate a real fight without the damage. Mm-hmm. Other martial arts, you actually kind of have to punch and kick each other. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of black eyes and bloody noses. And and I've done that too. And I'm kind of tired of that. Mm-hmm. So, so I've tried to find a martial art that I can do uh, and age well. You know? mm-hmm. and so, do, do they know that you're a, a musician or a drummer and do you tell them, hey, don't break my wrists? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. A lot of the responsi- responsibility starts with me going to class and not being a meathead and not being an aggro uh, idiot and just flopping around like a spaz. Mm. I, I make sure that I'm very careful, graceful, um, loose, uh, patient. And I also uh, am very careful with my limbs and I'm careful with my partner and it's strange. Uh, the better you get at it, the more people just mirror your own level of aggression and style. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're there, super chill, super peaceful, like I'm just here to to train and to learn, you kind of get that energy back. But if someone comes in like a bully and starts throwing people around and being a little too aggressive, people respond with that type of energy too, and it mm-hmm. escalates. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, it's 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 one part you have to pick good partners that aren't going to, you know, really clumsily hurt you. But it's another another part is you have to explain to them 
this is who I am. I'm not a UFC fighter. I'm here for the fun of it and for the fitness. Uh, oh. Try not to uh, go berserker on me. <laughs> Funny, right? You got to come to a class with me someday. <laughs> no, because I'll be the one that would get fired up and I'd get my, my arm broken or something. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's a learning experience to not, to, to not like just go there immediately. Do yeah. not go like, oh boy. <laughs> you have to relax, you know? Yeah. The one time I had a, a wrestling match with my longest best friend, he tried to rip my ear off and I tried to choke him out. So we were like, okay, we'll never do this again. <laughs> it escalates and it's, yeah. it's nature. It's nature. Like, uh, I mean, if you ever see two puppies playing together or two baby, uh, like, I don't know, panda bears, they're basically doing jujitsu. You see, mm-hmm. it's kind of cute, and they're, they're, it's play, but that's what they do. They they roll around, they're like biting each other and smacking each other, and that's a form of of learning and playing for babies of all throughout nature. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I feel like kids have that too. I don't know in a sandbox or whatever, playing with their parents. I wrestle with my kid all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, pick them up in the air, throw them on the mattress, and <laughs> and. Uh, and then you get to a certain age where that's just not acceptable. Uh, if if you go anywhere near there, that's actually a fight at that point. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're entering my personal space, and now we're going to blows. You know, fisticuffs. <laughs> so it's fun to have an adult version of that, an adult version of uh, you know pandas, you know, smacking each other around. But it's yeah. a controlled, agreed version of this, and it's kind of biologically satisfying in a weird way. Mm-hmm. So I noticed. Um when you play, no matter who you're playing with, whether it's arenas or club dates, whatever, you have a pretty chill approach to the gig. Is this a result of training, or is that just the, kind of the way you are as a as a player? I feel like you're very relaxed, controlled, elevate when you need to, but I don't ever see like headbanging or crazy stuff like that. Mm. I think it it's more who I am, and mm. and uh, it's my personality a lot. It's my technique. Um, uh, believe me, I went through, I was a drummer in the nineties mm-hmm. and I used to hit harder than anyone I knew. Mm-hmm. And I used to bash drums and bash cymbals and bash snare drum heads and rim shots and break sticks. And, but that, you know, 1992 to 1998, that was how you had the play to, to get a gig in a band. You know, mm-hmm. you, you had to be, you know, rage against the machine or, you know, Nirvana level drumming. And I used to play that way all day long, pop acts, top 40 acts. I was, <laughs> I was going, I was going for it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but then I started, I don't want to think it's age. It's just more maturity than age. I thought, Hmm, does this, is this the best approach? Does it sound good or does it just feel good or look good? Um, Am I getting good tone? Am I getting good feel, good pocket? Am I getting consistency? Uh, all these things, um, other qualities of drumming started to come into play. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I playing uh, relaxed and efficiently? Am I uh, using my my limbs correctly? Uh, you know, um, and I think it was a slow journey from that person, that caveman that I was for a while, into being a drummer that I. I, I like the way I sound better now than I did back then, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, a lot of bashing and a lot of head banging is cool. It's energetic. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't always sound that good. Mm-hmm. If you close your eyes and listen, you're like, hmm, I can I I can often hear someone's body motion in their beat. Mm-hmm. Like if they're very if they swing their arms like from the ceiling to the to the drums or if they're really swaying forward and back or really swaying side to side sometimes i close my eyes and i can hear it in the pocket i'm like oh mm-hmm. wow i they could if they just moved maybe 30 percent less it would groove way harder mm-hmm. you know there's something about the extraneous motion that's affecting the pocket and the consistency and then you talk about what everyone like knows that you know depending on how hard you hit the drums or the cymbals that affects how they sound under microphones. Mm-hmm. So if I'm just smashing a snare drum, that's fun. And it's one sound, but 
does that sound good with that close mic SM57 on the top head, or does it just sound like just garbage? Mm-hmm. You know, and the room mics it might sound pretty cool, but the close mics I don't know. So you start to learn how to play the mics, and you start to learn how to in uh, what's it called your your internal dynamics between different drums, uh, and you you start to pre-mix yourself, and those things affect your the way you play also. And on top of all that, we're talking about the the biomechanics of drumming, and I do like a looser style and um, with very little tension. I do like good posture, so I'm not leaning a lot, putting weight over any certain portion of the kit. I do like, um, um, you know, proper motion, good posture, good balance, good dynamics. So it's it's everything, and mm-hmm. it, it I, I don't think it came from martial arts. I think it came from more just my personality and and the way I like to approach the drum set. Now, how does that translate in the studio? That makes sense. You can not worry about the visual, but when you're playing big stages with a crowd that's a half a mile back, how do you then incorporate the visual element without it becoming some sort of compensation? If you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't mind big motions. I don't mind stick spinning. I don't mm-hmm. mind all that stuff as long as I'm not compromising the feel, the groove, or the sound. I, years ago, took out, like, I don't mind it as being an extra on top, the icing on the cake. Because I will, I used to study molar technique, and I love, my crashes are like, they, they're like gigantic bullwhip crashes normally, like live. But, I only do that if it makes sense musically. I think my ego is in check now where I don't feel like I need to impress people by looking cool anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe I did when I was 21, uh, but 23, but I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like I want to impress people by sounding really good. Mm-hmm. I, I, wanted, I want the drums to sound like uh, you know, a freight train. I don't want it to sound like like you're throwing you're rolling a drum set down a staircase, but it looks really cool. You know, I want it to sound solid and impressive, uh, impactful. And on top of that, if I feel inspired to hop off my drum throne or smash some crash cymbals or something, that's cool. I usually play with uh, a 16 and 18 inch floor tom on my side, and every now and then I lean to three o'clock and I bash the toms, you know, because it feels good. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but but I'm not but that's an effect like kaboosh. you know I'm not mm. going to sit there and just bash open hi-hats and rim shots just randomly because it it really looks amazing you know Sw- swinging these big circular motions over my head because <laughs> then I think like I don't know am I am I focusing on the time or am I focusing on how cool it looks to whip my arms around and so I, I do understand that a live show is 50% visual, you know, mm-hmm. that's why they have video walls and that's why they have pyro and confetti because a live show is about that also. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to deny that and say that I'm going to be up there and uh, play like a statue. I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the world's boringest drummer on the planet. I don't want to <laughs> be that, but I want to also stay true to my philosophy of drumming, which is, you know, sound, and feel first mm-hmm. and visuals second that's all so is the the approach you come to like a, a tour you're preparing for a tour practicing on your own and then when you get the rehearsals and then when you get to the first show you, is your presentation consistent or does it start the intensity start to ramp up a bit like, it, it usually ramps up usually ramps up um yeah I would say that that's pretty accurate. Normally what I do is I get music sent to me, email, MP3s, and I write out charts and I learn, I memorize songs and I come up with approaches that might work. You know, mm-hmm. A, B, or C might be a good way to do this live. Then we get to rehearsals. We learn everything. We get it going. And then uh, the more you play it, the more fun it gets to, you know, give it an extra 15%. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, what, that's a good thing to, to think about also is that the second you you finish your last rehearsal and you play it in front of an audience, you're going to naturally amp it up. Mm-hmm. It's 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 like you know, okay, ladies and gentlemen, and you 
you play the first concert, it's almost like you have to tell yourself to hold hold back a little bit because you're going to start hitting harder. Mm-hmm. You're going to start breathing worse. You're going to start pushing the tempo, uh, even if it's the click track. I'm just a little bit hot, more on top of the beat than I was during the rehearsals. So I have techniques to handle that too. Like I, I make sure I take a lot of deep breaths when I'm playing live. Mm-hmm. Like but before every verse, before every chorus, I just take a huge deep breath and I'm, okay, verse two, you know, here we go, chorus two. And that way I, I'm always, you know, making sure I'm taking a nice deep breath and, and staying relaxed. Um, I, I do this thing where I lean back literally on, this, on the drum throne if I feel like I'm playing tense or on top of the beat, I physically lean back a little bit and play, which is, it feels like you're leaning 45 degrees backwards off the throne, but you're not, you're actually just sitting up. Right. If you, if you ever, if you ever like, like look at yourself in a mirror, you're leaning back is actually up mm-hmm. and you're, and what you think is straight is usually like, uh, I don't know, 70 degrees forward or something. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes I'm playing, I'm like, man, it just doesn't feel as good today as it did yesterday. I take a deep breath and I lean back a little bit and all of a sudden the whole pocket of the whole band comes together a little better. Mm -hmm. And that's something I do. Um, But yeah, and it's actually fun to go a little crazy live. Mm -hmm. It's fun. I don't want to be like a a clinical technician up there. I want to have fun. I grew up listening to punk rock music and heavy metal. So I don't want to just be up there executing drum parts to perfection i want to i want to do that i want to do that but have fun too and i want other people to have fun you know yeah and um yeah i want the band members to have fun too do you have a pre-show ritual or routine that you do every time not fixed but i do have i'm a very routine kind of guy Mm -hmm. so depending on the tour and the scenario it's it's probably a whole day process it's mm. probably like, you know, got to find a good cup of coffee early in the morning and get a healthy breakfast, go to the gym, do a little cardio, stretch. I like stretching a lot. I don't do a full hour and a half of yoga, but I'll stretch. And then um, I do like warming up my hands and my feet on on a pad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like I'll just do some pad work, but also make sure I'm warming up my thighs and uh, calves and ankles and toes and things like that on the floor. Uh, I like hopping up and down. It sounds ridiculous, but like mm. something like, like a jump rope, uh, it helps because anything to get your whole body moving and not just your shoulder to your fingertips because mm-hmm. drumming isn't, and we, people think that if I just play on a drum pad, I'm ready to play a show, but really you've just warmed up like, 15% of your body mm-hmm. <laughs> everything else has to be warmed up too so I like anything that makes me feel like my whole body is ready to go I uh, I like uh, having a decent dinner but way before the show mm-hmm. like 5 5 or 6 o'clock not 8 or 9 o'clock and I like hanging with the musicians that I'm about to share a stage with mm-hmm. you know in the dressing room or, or just you know some com- camaraderie so it's not just we're all in separate bunks on a bus, you know, playing with our iPhones. And then we go on stage and play a concert and pretend like we're a family. Mm. I like it to actually be a real family where we're hanging out for an hour or two, joking around and maybe, um, uh, on the Shakira tour, we're such a family that we make it a, an entire pre-show and post-show party. Like the mm. dressing room we're we're DJing, everyone's hanging out. We're playing ping pong together. And like the whole thing it's from, from five o'clock to midnight, it's an entire thing we're doing together. It's not like we just have that nine to 11 on stage and we all separate. Everyone's hanging out and eating dinner together. So, um, because I play with a lot of different artists and each band's a little different, I can't take the same scenario each time, but I know what makes me comfortable. Mm -hmm. I know what I'm there to do. And my number one job is to play the drums well, uh, and to make everyone in a, everyone else on stage really comfortable so that's my first objective everything else is secondary i can be very flexible do you think about the music once you're in a like a run on the road do you think about the music anymore or do you try to not think about it when you're not on stage like do you go back and review tapes or do you 
you know, replay things that you might have, you could have done better in your mind. That usually plagues me, the one mistake. It's like, all right, I'm going to be thinking about that for the next 24 hours. <laughs> or do you try to just forget about it? Um, I do rethink things. I, mm-hmm. I don't like to think a lot on stage. I think I've, I've, my approach to playing music is you do a lot of the thinking in the rehearsals or the practice sessions and you, do, and you kind of go up on stage like a zombie and you mm-hmm. just clear your mind and just go. And then the next day you can do some critical analysis again, mm-hmm. but I don't sit on stage saying, Oh, that was a little head that was behind. Oh, maybe I should tune my snare drum higher. Oh, maybe, you know, I don't know about that. You know, I don't do that throughout the show. That'll just drive you crazy. And then you're playing at a, at a C minus level because your brain is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think about, um, you know, just relaxing, clearing the mind and just go, you know, just shoot the firing pistol, you know, and just go. And then <laughs> yeah. when the show's over, you can either that night or the next day, you can talk about how it went and maybe some observations you have, like maybe this song isn't working the way it should, or maybe I can come up with a better drum fill going from here to here, or maybe the dynamics aren't working on this section, but that's mm-hmm. stuff that could be handled, not in the actual performance of the show. And, um, but yeah, I, I think there's always some room for improvement. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like to, I like to analyze and kind of like almost like there's a statue and you're kind of just you know sanding it a little bit here and buffing mm-hmm. it there. I think there's even if the song is really great, maybe we can take it just a little bit higher, you know. And uh, yeah, sometimes I think maybe my drum approach could be a little bit better or the fills or the, or the sonically, you know, I, I work a lot with engineers, mm-hmm. uh, the front house engineer, how are we doing with that kick drum sound? How's that snare drum sound holding up, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of stuff, how are the levels coming out of the electronics? I mean, do you need any EQ differently? And so, yeah, I tweak the whole time. Are you MD on most of these gigs? Um, some but not all but what happens is if you're a a drummer whether you're the md or not you often get asked to do a lot of md type things Mm -hmm. i think it's something about the position of your job position is you know i often do all the tempos i i uh, i often do all the count offs Mm -hmm. i do all that cue all the endings i um often get asked to put together the set lists I often run the tracks. So these are a lot of MD things. Mm-hmm. There are some MD things that uh, I don't like doing is like handling uh, record labels and management, you know, mm-hmm. uh, those, those kind of things. Uh, coddling the artist when they, uh, they want to uh, maybe jump off a roof. You're like, I want you go, you go handle the artist. I'll go fix the Ableton, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's you, it's good to have like uh, an, like a, an, a like a, like a duo when you're MDing, mm-hmm. I think to have more of the technical guy and more of the emotional guy. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like kind of being more the technical guy that makes sure everything's solid uh, for the show. And then there's someone else who's going to go argue with management about the, uh, the pay cut or something. Mm-hmm. That leads me into the next topic. <clears throat> what do you feel? What's kind of a two parter? What do you think? you brought to the table before you had any gigs that gave you the first break? And then what do you feel are essential to be on your level now, skill-wise? Mm. Let me so break what do you think got you your too. first gig? What was it? Or what things? And then what things do you now know that are essential to be first-call touring drummer? Mm. They might overlap a bunch, but mm-hmm. let me think. Uh, a lot of my first breaks were when I was living in Miami. I, I went to music school down there and I worked down there for a while. And I started playing with different bands and producers and doing tours out of Miami. And I think probably the qualities I had at the time were versatility, mm-hmm. stylistically being I, I could play um, pop, rock, latin jazz you know singer songwriter stuff um it's not just like 
studied it. I actually enjoy listening to different styles of music and enjoy studying the drummers that excel at the different styles of music. Mm-hmm. I like a really good pop drummer. I like a really good fusion drummer. I like a really good jazz drummer. And so I think I don't phone it in on certain styles of music. I look at what makes, you know, Carlos Vega amazing and what makes, uh, you know, Brian Blade amazing and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, um, I think my, just my organization and preparation is probably mm-hmm. also a quality that helped me out a lot when I was, uh, younger because musicians can be just knuckleheads <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, so if you can just kind of keep it together, <laughs> you'll, you'll automatically rise just one level up. Like I didn't do anything special, but I showed up with my bass drum pedal. So that, <laughs> that was a plus, you know, <laughs> I did not forget my stick bag and I actually learned the songs prior to the gig. I don't know why that was a big thing, but those things got me the gig. So I think those are some things like just thinking about those things early on, you know, uh, helped me a bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I had aspirations to be uh, a freelance session drummer before I even knew what that was. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about it like how much I idolized um, Omar Hakim when I was a kid mm-hmm. that uh, I bought Sting's uh, Dream of the Blue Turtle on LP. And I was listening to these drum parts like, oh, man, I'm a huge Stuart Copeland fan. And I love this new drummer, too. Who is mm-hmm. this guy? Then I found out this the same guy with David Bowie, with Miles Davis, with Weather Report. I'm like, how is this guy playing with so many artists? Uh, John Schofield. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just so cool that he could do all these styles of music and do it convincingly. And so probably before I even knew that that was a, a, a an actual job, I just liked that idea of someone who was professional and stylistically diverse enough to do, you know, a plethora of gigs. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe I had that in my head of trying to be that kind of guy before I even knew what it was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are some of the qualities I think helped me early on. And I think now uh, your question was, how do you keep a gig or how do you work now? Well, I think like if you had, let's say you had to hire somebody to replace you, <clears throat> what would be the non-negotiables you have to do to be able to do this, this, and this? Oh, well, I, I do have a, a roster of subs here in mm. Los Angeles. And yeah, so I do think about this stuff often. And it depends on the gig. Sometimes I think this guy is perfect for this gig. This guy's perfect for that gig. And, but one is how, how able are they to learn the music perfectly? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, are they going to be one of those kind of guys who's like, ah, I checked out the grooves. I think I got it. I'm like, that's not going to work because that's going to be a lot of headaches for the rest of the guys explaining Hey, there's a break here. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, <laughs> you actually drop out for this first. You know, I want some musician who's saying that's that's important. Uh, when you have someone sub for you, it can be a problem. You, it can be a money loss. You know, if they have to rehearse a guy for a week. And it's your fault because you you double book yourself or you have to split. It's a problem. So I like to have subs who can just walk in, sit down and sound like me or a better version of me, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so someone that could come in, they have the sound styled in, they have a great, great feel and pocket and they learn songs. Mm -hmm. Learning songs is is big for me. And, And then on top of that, having a really good attitude. They're not going to get in there and be Mr. Negative and complain about how terrible the lunch was or how they don't like the temperature on the bus. And <laughs> there's a there's a lot of whining that mus- musicians can do. And I get it. You know, gigging can be, you know, very um, trying at times. But just, you know, hold that in a little bit. You know, rein in your 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 inner monologue a little bit, and just make it through the week or the month or whatever. So uh, those are the qualities that most of my friends 
uh, have is mm-hmm. yeah they have just great great sounds great feels they can nail a click track and they really learn material. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store, celebrating its 40th year in business. Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. Sounds simple enough, but that is that's that's high level stuff. Like yeah, I mean, because I, I I I sub for a lot of friends, mm-hmm. so I know what works well and what they want is, hey man, can you cover for me? I'm like, sure. And what they really want is someone who's going to show up, and basically, the artist, the band, and the management won't even notice that the other guy's missing. Mm-hmm. That's how good you want it to be. So they show up, they sit down, and go, oh my god, there's a different drummer. I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And the, the the gig goes flawlessly. You leave. You look great. The friend looks great that subbed you in. Mm-hmm. He's like, wow, that guy you sent did a great job. You're like, yep. So you have this little um, kind of uh, group of comrades who all do that for one another. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you look like a solid team. Do you, um, how do you prepare a sub? Do you send them video, board tapes, charts? I mean, what's your, how do you prepare? How do you prepare a sub and how do you prepare as a sub? Um, I prepare a sub depending on how, um, uh, once again, I hate to say it, but depending on the gig. But um, usually I'll ask them what makes them comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, they, do they want my charts? Do they want to write out their own charts? Uh, do, they, do they want me to you know, GoPro a, li- a live show and then send them the video? Uh, and uh, so I'll do all of that um, for certain gigs where I know the artist is just, for lack of a better term, picky. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I will say like, you know what? Hey, can we get together once? And mm-hmm. I'll actually go over the guy's studio and I'll go through, you know, all 15 songs. Like, yeah, actually, it's this. And actually, it actually goes like this. And you're the one who dictates this section and you got to watch for this because this this part is open and the singer's going to go like this. And then you're back in again and mm-hmm. whatever. Just, you know, help them out with cues. Cues are something that people take for granted. I sub for, on a, I sub for a lot of people on gigs. I learn all the songs. I'm like, I got this. I got this. I get to the first sound check. And, and I didn't realize that so many things are cued off of like things on stage. I go, when I go like this, then we do this. When the singer goes like this, then we do this. You know, I'm like, well, I, this is something I could not gauge from all the live recordings, that yeah. everything is based on cues. And I wish someone would have told me that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. So, again, I will. I don't want to bombard a sub with too much info and then freak them out. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, I'll say, what makes you comfortable and what can I do to make this seamless for you? And vice versa, when I sub for someone, I say, give me all the material. You don't have to give me charts. I'll write out my own charts. And then I often go to YouTube and look for as many live performances as I can, because those are more telling than the album versions. Mm-hmm. You watch it live and you're like, oh, they, the guitar solo is twice as long. This is three BPM faster than it is on the album. Uh, oh, they do a total unison Frank Zappa ending <laughs> for this one song that I didn't know about. And um, so, or they medley this, these two songs are actually a medley. And so I, I try to get as many live YouTube uh, uh, videos under my belt. Um, sometimes I'll watch several, if the artist has several drummers over the years, I'll watch all of them mm. to see how, how the approach changed throughout the drummers. Mm-hmm. That's fun for me. It's like, oh, I like it. This guy in the 90s did it this way. This guy in the aughts did it this way. And the guy, the more recent guy plays it this way. And that's it. And I ask a lot about the artist. I ask mm. a lot about what do they like? What, um, how are they with stage volume? Do they like loud drums? Do they like quiet drums? Mm. Do they hate drums? <laughs> do you have to be almost invisible 
there are artists who you're there, but they don't want to hear you or, mm. or something, or do they need to feel the drums? Uh, uh, how are they with tempos? Are they, do they let the drummer just do whatever they want or do they count off a song and then turn around and give you the stink guy all night? <laughs> you know, you know, the singer who counts off the song and then uh, blames you for it being too fast. You're like, dude, you counted it off. Yeah. But I that, had a that, lot of those behind the back, like swirling finger speed up. Yeah, like, no, stomping dude. their feet. <laughs> like, don't drag. You're like, well, count it off correctly. But, <laughs> but that's, so you, you ask like, so how are they with the, with tempos? How are they with dynamics? How are they, you know, do, do they want interaction or do they want to not even look at the band? They just want to, mm-hmm. you know, stare at the audience. So those things help. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's fun. I, I, I love subbing because it's, I feel like it, it's flying by the seat of your pants, like putting all of your skills together into one night. Mm-hmm. Like everything yeah. I've trained for is coming together right now. It's like you a know, street so fight. it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a street fight. Sometimes I lose. Sometimes I win. <laughs> well, we got to talk about gears This is a podcast. that's all about gear. So this could, this could take a while. Maybe I love First it. question. Um, Cause all of your kits seem to be custom built per gig in a way. So first of all, what is your home base kit? Like what if you're just going to play drums? What is it mm. most often? Uh, my favorite setup. Even though all of my drum sets look different, they all come from the same blueprint, which is a 22-inch kick drum, 14-inch snare drum, 13-inch rack, 16-inch uh, floor tom, and 18-inch floor tom. So mm-hmm. I like one up, two two down, 22, 14-inch snare drum. I often like a secondary snare drum to the left side of my hi-hat. The size and pitch depends on the style of music. I like hi-hat, ride cymbal, probably a left and a right crash i'll mm-hmm. start with that and then everything else builds from there depending on the gig mm. yeah and uh i'm a dw endorser and um i usually start with actually doesn't matter really i'll play i'll play anything that they have mm-hmm. uh, sometimes a collector's maple i like the jazz i like um i had a what is that called uh performance series with tegan and sarah i had uh um i don't know i have an acrylic i have a stainless steel so i don't know but that's my go-to setup how do you pick which one goes on the road or is that a different situation visual Mm. visual i usually send uh i usually ask the either the artistic director or the artist if they have a color in mind Mm. and uh for instance, I did a, a tour last fall with Morrissey and I asked them, uh, do I need to build a kit for this tour uh, with the guys at DW or can I use one that I already own? And they said, well, just send him. Here's his email. Send him every kit you own and he'll pick one. I'm like, all right. <laughs> okay. So I, I just I took photos of every kit I had and sent it to him. And, and he, he sent back like the stainless steel, please. I love it. And I'm like, okay, great. So that's Perfect. it. So he picked it. But um Sometimes it's sonic, but I feel like I can get a decent sound out of most of my drums. So I don't think so much about the sound like, oh, my God, for this tour, this is totally an acrylic drum mm-hmm. set tour. I don't that's more a visual thing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think, oh, my God, this tour is totally mahogany and this one's poplar. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like as a drummer, you should be able to tune well enough to get a decent sound out of all of your drums. Do you um, tune differently for like a big stage tour versus a small club or a session? Uh, yes. Yes. But, uh, I mean, I, I, um, I usually go with, I mean, head choice comes, come, uh, make is a big deal when it comes to tuning. Mm. I like coded ambassadors a lot. Mm-hmm. I like, that's like a, like a starting point for me with almost all my drums, but every now and then on a snare drum, I'll use the, coded cs dot mm-hmm. every now and then i'll use coded emperors on the toms uh and occasionally occasionally i'll go with clear tom heads uh, clear emperors or even clear pinstripes if i want to go for some kind of 80s pop tom sound uh so sometimes i'll change 
my approach just by changing the tom heads and all of a sudden i'm playing differently mm-hmm. you know uh but and tuning yeah sometimes i do the super low thuddy thing sometimes i do more low medium tuning with some uh gaff tape uh to prevent uh the the ringing mm-hmm. the uh, the oh, the excess overtones i should say and um yeah and uh snare jump pitch is is big when it comes to touring mm-hmm. like sometimes people like really low chunky snares and sometimes people don't and they want it to cut so i'll, I'll play any snare drum range depending on the style of music i i often discuss that with the front house engineer mm-hmm. what, what they like like i have one one engineer i work with on a lot of tours and he likes like a five and a half by 14 inch uh snare drum tuned kind of medium high no no muffling wow. and sometimes i'm like wow in my in-ears i'm like wow that is really <laughs> but, but he's like don't touch it out front it's incredible i'm like huh. okay all right you know and, I, and i'm like well that's like so i put a little bit of tape i try not to tell him and he's like hey the snare drum sounds dead today did you put any <laughs> tape on him i did i did okay and i take it back off again so that but that's him so he knows how to get a good sound i subbed um for stacy jones for a while in miley cyrus and that engineer loves the deepest snare sound you can get out of a drum. Mm. I sat down on, on the drum and it was like, <laughs> like the heads are floppy and the snares are floppy. I'm like, Oh, this must've been in someone's uh, like the back of their pickup truck in the sun for three days. Right. So I started, I started to, to tune it up and the engineer's like, don't touch it. It sounds incredible. I'm like, really? But he's got it dialed in in the front house, and it does sound incredible. The guy's mm-hmm. Paul Hager is an amazing engineer. So, so therefore, you have to, as a drummer, you're providing the drum beats, but you're not really totally in charge of what it sounds like through the PA. Mm-hmm. That guy has his EQs, his effects, whatever he's doing, his gates, his compression. So you have to have a communication with them. Uh, so that's all live studio. You asked about too. That's a whole other thing, Mm -hmm. you know, drum head wise, tuning wise, you have to, and, and it depends on the room, depends on the style of music. And it really depends on, are you favoring the close mics? Are you favoring the distant mics? Mm -hmm. You know, a drum sound a certain way when you use rooms and overheads and another way when you're using primarily the little mics that are about an inch off the the drum head. It's mm-hmm. a totally different thing. I mean, and you can, if you don't know anything about miking, you can just notice that you walk into a big room and watch a drummer play and he's going, boosh, ga, boo, 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 ga. You're like, oh, that sounds incredible. Well, that's the room sound. And then if you go and you put your ear an inch away from the snare drum and he plays the same beat, you're like, oh my God, you're <laughs> killing me. <laughs> do that's what a mic is doing you know would you put your ear an inch off the top of the snare drum rim and listen to rim shots all day long that's (laughs) practically suicidal but that's what drum mic close mics do so you have to treat those differently and you have to tune differently if that's how you're gonna uh mix with those microphones and that's where all the weird tunings and drums and treatments and heads and you know muffling comes into play Mm mm-hmm what about the bass drum? Do you muffle it differently for touring versus studio? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, the idea of um, a big wide open bass drum live hardly ever works. Mm-hmm. I won't say never, but never. No, I would say never, <laughs> but almost never. And if you show up to a tour with a 24-inch bass drum with no holes in it, uh, there will be uh, engineers like taking bows and arrows and like, <laughs> like shooting them at your head. They do not like that. And there's a reason why, because it reverberates to the point where they cannot control it. Mm-hmm. They cannot, there's just so much vibration in the room that even if you're not playing the bass drum, it's still going. Mm-hmm. And they have to do all sorts of weird things, gates and EQs to make it sound decent. And what would fix all that is just putting a packing blanket or a pillow in the bass drum. And, um, I think the idea of cutting a hole in the front or not cutting a hole in the front is not as important as putting 
some type of blanket or pillow in the base drum. Because sometimes you can pull off a no-hole front head that has a little bit of stuffing in it, and it, it'll still work. Mm-hmm. But if, but um, but a uh, just a ringy, ringy, ringy bass drum, which sounds so amazing in your studio or in your practice space, it hardly works when it's mic'd up and going through a PA. Now, some people might be hearing this and thinking I'm nuts, but this is just from me trying to do it and engineers mm. trying to strangle me. <laughs> uh, so I feel like live having a hole and having a little bit of stuffing that makes the bass drum sound a little controlled gives gives them the ability to crank the kick and make it super thuddy. Mm. Do you, do you, would you like the engineer to turn your bass drum off live because they can't control it? No. You want them to crank your drums. And the mm-hmm. best way they can crank their drums is if they're slightly deader. Mm-hmm. The deader your drums are, the louder they can turn your drums, which is, you know, that kind of 70s thuddy sound. Mm-hmm. You know, they're dead, so you can crank them in the mix. Uh, they might not be as fun to play, but sorry, you know, it's what's going to sound good out front. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had engineers debate over the size of the hole you cut in the front of the head and where to cut it center hole or offset hole five inch six inch seven inch <laughs> uh, seriously i've had this debate like we try a seven inch hole instead of a five inch hole i'm like let's do it and like and there's a reason why because the amount of air that comes out of the hole is different is it mm. you know is it is it going like through a tiny hole or is it kind of going through a bigger hole and it's it's a different sound mm. and it, it 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 affects the front head differently uh, I thought it was crazy talk. I'm like, this guy is just messing with me. <laughs> but it, but you, you, when you start to change the location and the size of the hole, you hear different sounds. It's either punchier or it's boomier or woofier. Um, yeah, and then the kind of the kind of muffling you want to do. I'm a big fan of muffling the, I guess we're calling it the batter side of the bass drum more than the front head. Mm. I really think that having uh, something laying on the 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 beater side of your kick uh tightens things up and then if you have a hole in the front head you can have like just the the sleeve of a t-shirt touching that and that might be enough to stop it you know mm-hmm. it might give you that nice combination of attack deadness and a little bit of bonamy ring still mm-hmm. so actually that's usually my go-to bass drum sound is to have a little bit of muffling touching the batter side and barely anything touching the front head mm. What do you use? Like t-shirts, towels, blanket? What is your your choice? Yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah anything. I, anything I could find on the side of the stage, usually. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, only because I I often have to rent kits, like uh, rent yeah. backline. So I show up and I'm like, here we go. There's nothing in the bass drum. So I just start walking around the side of the stage looking for rags and <laughs> and things. I'm like, oh, there's someone's hoodies over here. I'll take that hoodie. <laughs> and I just put the hoodie in the bass drum, and that works. You know. I, I um I don't know. It all works. It's all different. Yeah. All right. So let's build out some kits. So let's talk about the Morrissey kit. What yeah. did you add to your basic setup, and why was it added? Uh, an SPDSX I added, mm-hmm. uh, both to check tempos, like as a as a count off tempo reference. I, I put all the songs in there in a set list, and uh, and there were like a like a hundred songs I had to learn. So and I had the BPM for every one of them in there. And then I had some samples in there. So that was on the left side. Uh, what else did I have? He wanted a gong bass drum for a couple songs. Mm. I had one of those, fortunately. And uh, he wanted an actual gong for the end of a couple songs. And uh, it's, you would think it's just visual, but it actually, oh no, the end of this song ends with a gong. And this one ends with this roll. I'm like, cool. I have a gong, believe it or not. So <laughs> I pull it out like once every nine years. Let's do it. And then um, what else? Um, then I think about little things. Like, do I have enough sticks? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two pairs of in-ear monitors. So I have make sure both of them are working. I have a little, uh, what's it called? Vornado fan on the floor. Mm-hmm. I like to, so I don't get too sweaty during the gig. Um, what else did I have? I think I had an extra symbol. I, I added a China on the far right. And um, if I'm not mistaken, that was about it. 
Okay. Now, what about the um, Perry Farrell setup? Pretty much the same, minus the gong bass drum and the gong. I uh, I think I had. Oh no, I had electronics on that. I had. Uh, uh, what are the Roland's gonna hate me if if I forget? I always forget the serial numbers for all this stuff. <laughs> What's the little blue and black device they have that that allow that has? It's a trigger device. Um, TM eleven R. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. D, yeah. D's. Yeah. I don't. I never. I cannot remember <laughs> uh, model module. numbers. Yeah, it's not the tiny one that only had two inputs. It's the bigger one that has like six inputs. Uh-huh. I, I had one of those because Perry loves like doing like spacey effects during the intros of songs. So I had to have all these dub delay sample sounds that would go bo 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 bo. Oh, stuff okay. like that for, for intro so i had that around the kit with little pads and and then other than that my regular setup uh two snares one up two down same symbol setup um there was an spdsx on that too to play some some sample uh one shots and things uh i like i i should say i always like having a double pedal just in case so mm-hmm. i have a dw 5002 double pedal and my friends will look at me like, you play double pedal? I'm like, believe it or not, I always have a double pedal just in case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just in case there's one time where they're like, you need to do this little thing. I'm like, got it. <laughs> yeah. Are you playing to clicks for those two particular gigs? Uh, mostly. I would say Perry Farrell, about 50%. Mm-hmm. And Morrissey, about uh 85 percent 90 percent to click is that coming through the spds or is that coming from monitor in um oh okay a little bit different uh the morrissey thing sometimes i if there's no tracks i'll just start a click on the spdx on the on the metronome they have there Mm -hmm. and i'll play along no one else hears it Mm -hmm. i just hear it and i can either play and then shut it off or keep it on if i feel like i need it or it helps the song but they also have tracks that the drum tech runs, which has its own click. So certain songs have loops or sequences. So then mm. I'll I'll cue him. Oh no, I have a foot pedal for that. So mm. I'll start. I'll I'll tap the foot pedal and the tracks begin. It's just a stop and a start. And um, so there's a handful of songs where there's tracks coming out of a machine that have a click track. And then um, Perry Farrell, uh, it's either. The older material has no no click. The Janes and the Porno for Pyro stuff has no click, and his newer stuff is coming out of Ableton. Hmm. Is the same thing you're starting and stopping, or is it coming in? That, they have an engineer running it, and he's like one of those, uh, you know, uh, uh, like uh, rocket scientists on, on the Ableton. So he's <laughs> he knows more about that than I do as far as, I mean, I know a lot, but he's the kind of guy who can do edits on the fly and everything, so... I like having a second guy there, so I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about the big rig with Shakira. Mm-hmm. What does that involve? That involves, again, imagine the same setup I just said for the last two artists, except now we're going to take a V-drum set and intersperse it around the kit. So mm-hmm. I don't have a, a V-drum set like behind me, like Neil Peart style. I just take it, I take it off the rack, and I just stuff it around my drum set. So... Mm. My bass drum has an electronic bass drum pedal right next to it. My floor toms have two floor tom pads right above them on a rack. Mm. My rack tom has a rack tom pad right to the ne- next to it. My snare drum has a snare drum pad right to the left of it, you know. So I can actually just by moving 6 inches I'm playing a electronic drum set or an acoustic drum set or I can combine the two. I could play an electronic kick drum with a real snare and or the other way around so that's pretty much what it is it's on a rack because there's a lot of little parts i don't use a rack with anyone else and um and then and and also there's some percussion also thrown in there uh maybe some bongos a a doombeck things like that just for certain songs that she has and the reason why that kit looks so outlandishly enormous is because um i've been with her since 1998 and mm-hmm. she really likes drums and she really likes, um, you know, exploring different kinds of drum beats and drum parts. 
So every tour, we're just adding more stuff. <laughs> I'm like, I wish I didn't have to do it. I would show up with a bebop kit if I could. But she's like, oh, for this one, can you do this? Can you do that? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I look at the drum tech. I'm like, how do we do this? What do we need to get? And uh, so it just builds because some of her material, some of her catalog is just rock pop. Like she likes she likes Zeppelin. So I have to be able to cover a pseudo pop Zeppelin sound. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, some of the stuff is dance. So I have to have dance sounds and some of the stuff is reggaeton. Some of the stuff is super Latin. Some of it is world percussion and some of it is very pop, you know, so I have to be able to kind of do all those sounds. And I don't want, I don't want to have this, you know, uh, starship enterprise looking drum set, but it turns out that way. It turns out that way because I want to keep my job, and mm -hmm. that's what I need to provide. And Are I try you, to um, go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I was just going to say I try to play it because it's a lot to look at. So I try to play it very simply. I try not to overdo it by, you know, going Mr. Octopus and hitting everything every song. I'm like, all right, for this song, <laughs> I'm just playing kick, snare, hi hat, and for this song, I'm playing all the electronics over here, and for this song, I'm playing this. Which is funny because someone will see me play one song only and they're like, why do you have all that stuff if all you're doing is playing the Octopad? I'm like, well, that was that one song. <laughs> right. The one song, that's all I play. <laughs> I don't hit everything on every song. I only hit that on that song. But the other songs I'm playing brushes on the snare and the other song I'm doing this. And it's just she has just a ton of material. So mm -hmm. depending on the set list, that will dictate what surfaces I'm hitting that night. Do you control the sound changes or is that coming off stage as well at the moment i do it i i for the electronics the samples mm -hmm. i i run a laptop with battery four in it and i just toggle through the set list i have a, a different song with different samples in every, every song so i just put it in set list order and just just hit down 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 i just go between mm -hmm. the songs and battery four from native instruments that as far as i can tell doesn't take program changes i've tried to figure it out i think they, they've told me that you need to upgrade the contact if you wanted to do program changes so i just got in the habit of just like you know end the song switch the kit and then next switch the kit uh but i don't know i should probably just use uh, ableton drum rack instead because then i can have um the uh the uh guy running digital performer uh just send me program changes i wouldn't have to deal with it mm. but i kind of like is a weird old fashioned sense of me that I kind of like being in charge of all the stuff going on in the drum riser. Mm -hmm. I don't want to think that like I can't be in charge of my drum samples that I have to wait for him to, to load in the next song before I can hear the sounds on the next song. I mm -hmm. kind of like that. I'm in charge of it. Sweet, man. Well, I've only got one more question. What mm -hmm. was your first snare drum? First snare drum. Well, the one that jumps to mind is the Yamaha Black Beauty that was the Manukache Signature Series. I know that. It, it's, yeah, it was. I, I think I got that in 1990. No, yeah, about 1990, probably uh, at Sam Ash Music in Paramus, New Jersey. And. Um, I think that was the first drum I bought. Mm -hmm. I had a drum before that. If I, if I think back, I had a, the one that comes with a Pearl export, I mm -hmm. guess it's just a six and a half by 14 inch steel, like cheap steel. Yep. That was my first kit. I got off a neighbor. Uh, so that was probably the first one I ever had. But the first one I bought was I, I worked at a gas station for like a year and a half and then went down to Sam Ash and got myself a recording custom. And that was a snare drum I bought with that. And I used that drum for probably six or six years before I bought a second drum. Mm. Yeah. It was the, the only one I had. Smart choice. How'd you know to pick that one? That's a great drum. I, I don't remember. I remember liking Manu Kache because he played with Sting, <laughs> but I think it was probably the salesman help, helped me out. Mm. I can't remember. I, I, he was a great guy too. I can't remember his name, Max, maybe I can't remember, but he, um, yeah, I think he probably said, you know, you can get this, this, or why not just get this? And it was a good drum. I remember it was a loud drum. 
Mm-hmm. It was loud. <laughs> so I remember when I went to music school, I'd be playing, you know, in small groups. And that was, I had to really control that because that was like, ding, tick, ding, tick, ding, tick, ding, tick, ding. So I'm like, wow, you can't hit rim shots on that because it, it had die cast soups on it too. So it was loud. And then uh, when I was at school, at some point, I'm, uh, a teacher sold me a, uh, an old um, superphonic. Mm-hmm. that i started using too which was a little softer a little more forgiving and those are my only two drums for years i still have that superphonic right there that's on the shelf over there nice whatever mm-hmm. became of the recording customs i sold it oh no the, the recording customs i have yeah oh okay yeah oh yeah I, I still have those drums and uh they're they're the uh the red cherry color like the dave weckle red uh i have them i still have them with clear pinstripes it's a it's a great kit i used it forever and it's a it's i love the sound of that kit but it has certain things it doesn't do it doesn't mm-hmm. bark doesn't bark or growl like a like a rock kit should so i remember it, i i started playing a lot of rock gigs and i'm like wow this set is just a little too controlled mm-hmm. so then i would just i would use anything else that would just go pow, pow, poo, pow, poo, you know, because <laughs> right. that, that kid is just too nice. It's so nice under microphones. Right. So, uh, so I put that kit away for years, years and years and years. And I only brought it out recently. I'm like, man, this is a nice sound. This mm-hmm. is still, it, it's the pre yes mount recording custom era, you know? So it was yeah, 1990. I think I have like eight inch Tom eight, 10, 12, 13, 14, 16. Wow. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever set them up all at the same time. <laughs> and I'm going to do it this week, I think, but I've always just done like two up one down, but I think I'm just, just doing it. Bring back the eight, man. Make it cool again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was at a, a blue man group show in Vegas, not too long ago. And their, their kit, you know, the great, my friend Vince Bertarami plays in that band, but and they have an eight-inch tom on their drum set, and it was cutting in the most amazing way. It didn't sound like fusion. It sounded like this awesome tribal like mm. pitches. And I'm like, man, we got to bring back the eight-inch tom, <laughs> but but tune it like higher, more like a like a bongo with sustain. Uh, okay. And it, it was just a beautiful sound, uh, like contrasting with just toms always sound like thugga 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 thugga. You know, they have this really high cutting like sound um i don't know made me think about that like bring back the eight Mm. yeah well um i appreciate you hanging out for the hour plus um is there anything that we should let people know about what you're going to be up to this year Mm. nah okay perfect no i don't know (laughs) i got i got some gigs with uh perry farrell and morrissey coming up if uh if the world doesn't implode yeah, and yeah. Um, uh, I still got a lot of fun uh, drummer plus drummer projects uh, in the works. Uh, a lot of guys who are uh, collaborating. That's kind of fun. If anyone likes to check that stuff out, um, that's about it. Yeah, just, just keep on keeping on. It. Yeah, exactly. Well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Brendan. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. And I love your podcast. I think you're a really, really good interviewer. And uh, thanks for inviting me. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed my chat with Brendan, please head over to iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get this podcast, drop a five-star rating and review. That definitely helps spread the word and gets the show into the ears of more drummers around the world. And until next time, stay warm and I'll see you then.